Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Buddhang Dhammang Sankhang Namasami One of the things that uh, came up a few times in the interviews um, uh, was following on from the question time that we had and the, the question about consciousness and uh, awareness. Um, so I thought I would just say a, a few little things about that to begin with this evening just to uh, try to clarify that a little. Um, particularly that the, uh, the question was asked at about 3 minutes to 11. And there was both consciousness and awareness of the approaching uh, meal offering time <laughs> and the, uh, the witching hour of, uh, of uh, 12 o'clock approaching. So that uh, there wasn't a, a huge amount of time to, um, in which to uh, explore the question. So... Um, one of the images that uh, someone suggested uh, that I find kind of uh, helpful is to, uh, if we imagine that um, we're floating in space and uh, behind us is the sun, we're in the solar system, behind us is the sun and ahead of us is just the, the blackness of space with the stars off in the distance. And so um, then a, uh, a meteorite passes by, just a, a lump of rock passes by through space. And as it passes by, then it reflects the light of the sun. So while with the, with the sun behind us, we can't, even though it's uh, an extremely bright object, we can't see it. Because uh, it's uh, you know, the, what we're looking at is this blackness of space. There's nothing to reflect that light. When the meteorite comes by, then it reflects the light of the sun. So we see this kind of bright object moving past us. Um, so in this analogy, the sun is awareness, and then uh, the, meteor- the the light reflected from the meteorite is consciousness. So it's like consciousness has no light of its own. It only is bright due to the reflected light from, from awareness. And then if we, um, if we turn around, uh, as it were, and uh, face the, the sun, then it's like, oh, wow, it's a big bright light there. <laughs> but we didn't notice it because it was, our back was to it, um, and only through the um, fragmented or partial um, particular consciousness of the different, like this meteorite or whatever, other little pieces that float by, that we uh, get the pieces of the reflected uh, awareness. 
So that's one image that we can we can use. Uh, another um, piece that came to mind um, after that discussion was uh, from a, um, a biography of a Chinese monk, Han Shan, which I read many years ago. Um, and during the, in, the, in this biography, he, he recounts a very um, uh, significant symbolic dream that he had. And in the course of this dream, um, all kinds of different things happened, um, but one of which was that he uh, he was invited to go and visit the Bodhisattva Maitreya in the uh, in the Tushita heaven, which uh, is, uh, like in Buddhist cosmology, this is where the Maitreya is the the, the uh, will be the next Buddha, and that in the lifetime before uh, a, uh, the final life as a, a human being as a Buddha. Then the bodhisattvas stay in the in the Tusita heaven, and so that, um, Han Shan had this dream, and uh, in the course of this dream, then he um, he is uh, a kind of interesting interlude where he's uh, he's ushered along into this sort of heavenly realm, and then these these devatas are all very excited and they say, oh. Um, well, you've been invited to see the the Bodhisattva Maitreya. This is really good. This is really important. You must get. Pre- we must prepare you to go and uh, and uh, visit uh, the Maitreya. And he says, "Oh, fine, sure, great, marvelous." So then they say, "Come along, come along, come along," and they they whisk him off, and they they take him to this um, very uh, beautiful little um, uh, chamber with this large bathtub in it. And then they, they say, well, take your clothes off and, and get in the water. And, it's a, and, it's a, and he responds, of course, well, you know, I'm a monk and, you know, you're female devatas. And it's really, you know, not terribly, um, you know, sort of uh, proper um, <laughs> for me to be. And he gets all sort of hot and flustered and a bit uh, uncomfortable. And they said, oh, sorry about that. And they changed genders. <laughs> he says, okay. <laughs> Hops in the tub and then they... They give him a good uh, scrubbing. <laughs> and added to that, not only do they give him a good scrubbing on the outside, but he also realizes as they're scrubbing him, they're scrubbing him on the inside as well. And he's thinking, how are they scrubbing inside me without all my guts falling out? But he goes, well, somehow they're doing it, and I seem to be fine. So after this thorough cleansing, he goes off to meet the Maitreya. And um, and this, uh, the teaching that the Maitreya gives him was this, something that I, I remembered. Uh, I find very, stri- I found very striking. And it goes: discrimination is consciousness. Non-discrimination is wisdom. Clinging to consciousness causes defilement, whereas wisdom ensures purity. Defilement causes birth and death, whereas purity leads to where there are no Buddhas. Discrimination is consciousness, whereas non-discrimination is wisdom. Clinging to consciousness causes defilement, whereas wisdom ensures purity. Defilement causes birth and death, whereas purity leads to where there are no Buddhas. So this is a pithy little uh, verse, but it maps out some of the, the you know, this, this kind of terrain so that... Um, uh, that consciousness, or what we try, what the Pali word vinyana, 
is probably better translated as discriminative consciousness or the, the consciousness of, uh, of uh, the relationship between this and that. So uh, the word is, vijnana is made up of two pieces, vi and jnana. So jnana is, is knowledge or knowing. And vi means partial or fragmented. Um, so that it's, uh, vijnana is almost invariably used to refer to this kind of comparing this with that or, or a kind of particular uh, discriminative function of mind. Whereas you know, wisdom is... Um, intrinsically a transcendent quality. It is, it's that, if you like, the primordial uh, quality of, the, of, of ultimate truth. So if, if Dhamma is the substance, then um, Buddha is the function. If, if, uh, so that knowing is the primary function or primordial activity of ultimate truth. So that that uh, that little expression of um, you know, where they go, you know, between uh, starting out with consciousness and wisdom, that consciousness we cling to it, that causes uh, that causes defilement, and defilement causes us uh, to fall into birth and death, just as we we're describing with the teachings on independent origination. The other direction, you have um, wisdom ensures purity, so that when there's we. Uh, uh, we are guided by by the wisdom faculty when that is is leading the way then what we discover is purity which is say the heart in accord with with its own nature in accord with dhamma in accord with reality and the um, in that accordance then uh, there is a, a not only just the purity of conduct like a, you know, say an enlightened one is incapable of acting in ways that are, are disharmonious or selfish or hurtful or um, uh, following any kind of intention which is um, going to create, uh, will deliberately create uh, suffering for oneself or others. But a, a purity also of, um, of heart. So it's not just in terms of action but also in the, um, the, the subjective experience of uh, a, um, the experience uh, when there's wisdom, then you know, in simple terms, everything is fine. You know, every, we realize everything is pure. Everything is an aspect of nature. It's just like this. There's a, a quality of perfection that we discern at that moment. Then... Um, the, the last little piece, which always raises an eyebrow or two, if you haven't shaved them off, <laughs> is uh, purity leads to where there are no Buddhas. And this is kind of interesting from a Mahayana Buddhist tradition where you know, they have the um, uh, cosmology of, of Buddha lands and you'd think that the, the sort of finale or the, you know, the denouement of the piece would be to get to be with the Buddhas for, forever and ever. But... Uh, it actually um, takes much more of a, um, of a, of a sort of traditionalist uh, perspective, as, as you would find in Theravada, which is that um, you know, Buddhas appear in the realms of birth and death. Buddhas, uh, you know, a Buddha appears uh, in the human realm. Uh, they're born in the human realm. They appear in the realms of, of living beings. And that um, 
that purity or that quality of, of uh, clear, uh, undiluted knowing and seeing and, um, uh, say, utterly harmonious activity, that leads sort of out of the, the, the realms of birth and death. That leads out of the realms where the, where the Buddhas show up to, to that uh, place which is no place, that, that the, uh, the beyond, if you like, that um, where you know, n- there is uh, no, um, say, crystallization of the uh, of uh, Buddhas into an, an individual form. That it's like that. Um, I, I find it a very beautiful and helpful teaching because it kind of opens that right out. It's that it's not uh, confining it into uh, the personal, but it, it's recognizing that you know, in the in the beyond, in that quality of transcendence, which the, in Theravada teachings the Buddha was so reticent to say a lot about, other than that you know, it's worth realizing or go there and find out, <laughs> wake up to it. That. Uh, Rather than, than giving the more kind of later teachings of, uh, 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 that are comforting, saying, oh yeah, you'll be surrounded by these utterly irradiant wise beings for eternity. Like, oh, this is, you know, purity takes you to the, to the place where, there are, where there, are, there are no Buddhas. Because, um, in a way, it's the realm beyond definition, beyond uh, individuality. And you know, as I was quoting the other night, that passage um, from the Upasiva Sutta where the, the Buddha says, one who has reached the end has no criterion by which they can be measured. It's really that same principle. And even though he said, you cannot say that such a one does not exist, but when all modes of being, all phenomena have been removed, then all means of description have gone too. So it's a, there are, that, this teaching reflects that same principle. And... Uh, even though it's from uh, the northern Buddhist tradition, it kind of resonates and uh, derives from that same, that same place. It uh, is encouraging that quality of, of letting go, of not trying to define that reality in terms of, of uh, personhood in any way. So the, the last um, passage I thought I'd refer to, which is one I haven't memorized... <laughs> This is from some Tibetan teachings, um, uh, and a little book, uh, a rare book, which is called um, uh, Successive Stages of Meditation on Emptiness, and this is the, the, from the, the, the final section on what's called Shentong, which means emptiness of other. The non-conceptual wisdom mind is not the object of the conceptualizing process. Therefore, it can be said to be the only thing which has absolute and true existence. The luminous, this luminous, self-aware, non-conceptual mind that is experienced in meditation is absolute reality and not a vijnana, partial or fragmented knowing. Vijnana is always samuti, only a conventional reality. When the luminous wisdom mind is realized by the supreme wisdom, there is no seeing and seen aspect to the realization. This is the non-conceptual, non-dual wisdom mind itself, 
the clear light nature of mind, Prabhasara Chitta. It is also called the Dharmata and the Tathagata Garbha. So these are, um, yeah, I don't want to do a whole kind of evening on Indian languages, but uh, these, uh, the word Dharmata, you remember the other day I mentioned, that's the word in Thai that uh, uh, they, uh, they use to, ref- to mean ordinary. Tamada means ordinary. It also means this uh, the essence of reality. Tathagata Garbha literally means the womb of the Tathagatas. And that, that expression um, is, uh, is also synonymous with um, wisdom. So that the Prajnaparamita, this, uh, the, uh, the goddess on, on my left, is uh, uh, in later years, then this, it turned out, it started out as a, as a, um, as a quality with a name, uh, and then as years went by, and India being the way it is, <laughs> The uh, the name turned into a goddess, <laughs> and now she's uh, she's here at Spirit Rock. <laughs> but uh, so wisdom, Prajna Paramita, the perfection of wisdom, is also known as the mother of the Buddhas. It was like the source of the Buddhas. So that you could say Mahamaya was the was the mother of the Bodhisattva, but wisdom is the mother of the 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 Buddhas of the Buddha. So those are just a few little pieces I thought I would um, put into the collective pot to help uh, outline some of the, 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 you know, the contrast. And you know, in this respect, wisdom and awareness, we, we can use synonymous terms. You know, like the, um, when the Buddha was enlightened at the f- during the first discourse, and he describes how um, he's describing to the, his old five disciples what the experience of, of uh, Enlightenment was, he said, uh, Chakung Udapadi, Nyanang Udapadi, Vijja Udapadi, Panya Udapadi, Aloka Udapadi. It means that Chaku is vision, Chaku is the eye. Vision arose, Nyanang, knowledge arose, uh, Panya, wisdom arose, uh, Vijja, and knowing or uh, awareness, uh, understanding arose, Aloka, light arose. And it's not like five different things. <laughs> Arose. It's like these are. It's like a kind of saying: light, vision, knowledge, insight, understanding. It was all there, kind of just using a whole variety of terms. So, you know, please understand these these terms are are um, pretty synonymous. So when we talk about wisdom or awareness and uh, these different qualities, there, there's a lot of uh, of, of overlap, and uh, you know the word the terms can be used pretty interchangeably. So the, um, this is our, our final evening together, as we're all aware. And um, there, at this point of the, um, the, uh, the show, <laughs> then the mind uh, is inclined towards um, considering, well, how, how do I sustain? How do I keep some of this, this goodness, this insight, this, these qualities alive? Uh, as this, um, this all breaks up and separates and goes, uh, we all go our separate ways. You know, we maybe have experienced a sense of, of something very um, rich and good and uh, have many valuable qualities from this, this time together. Um, and so then, 
this is the most common question. In, in a way, it's it, it's and one of the reasons why I thought to to begin with this, you know, amplifying a little bit about consciousness and, and awareness, it's um, it's all to do with the same thing, like that that very original split between you know the mind uh, clinging to consciousness and then getting involved in. Um, caught up in defilement and then disappearing into to birth and death and around and around and around and around we go. Um, or, on the other hand, the, the track of, of, uh, of wisdom. If we, uh, if we choose wisdom, if we take that track, then you know, life becomes very different. We find ourselves you know, in, in a place of purity. We find that, that quality of, of balance and ease and... Um, the place where there, where there are no Buddhas, where we're not looking for, say, um, the source of, of goodness and of um, guidance or of security somewhere outside ourselves. And that's, that's really what the teaching is pointing us towards. It's, talk, it's talking about that, that uh, uh, and if you like, independence or, or self-reliance. You know, the Buddha said... Um, you could uh, take hold, if someone could take hold of the hem of my robe and follow me around for 20 years, but if the heart was filled with, with greed, hatred, and delusion, it was as if that person would be far away from the Tathagata. And if someone lived a hundred leagues away from here, and yet their heart was free from greed, hatred, and delusion, uh, it would be as if they were sitting face to face with the Tathagata. So whether we're close to the Buddha or, or not, or, or embodying the Buddha is, is up to us, and it's up to the attitude, the state of mind that we are sustaining. But uh, it's very easy for us to sort of project the source of, of goodness, of guidance, of, of um, refuge outside ourselves. And, and that does have a, a, a usefulness. You know, we have a shrine, or we, we kind of recite the verses of, of uh, reverence and, and, and uh, respect, we have teachers, we have you know, centers like this, or, or monasteries. And sure, we have these external qualities that remind us, but uh, unless we turn it inward, unless we discover that inner refuge, then we're kind of missing half of the, half of the pages in the book, you know, which makes a really poor story. <laughs> you end up with a kind of William Burroughs piece, <laughs> which is interesting in its own way, but, you know, doesn't sell as many copies <laughs> as a more kind of complete uh, tale. There was also a time when um, Ajahn Sumato, when he was a, a, a younger monk in Thailand and was training with Ajahn Chah, and after the initial flush of enthusiasm had washed over him, and uh, he'd been staying at the Wat Bapong, Ajahn Chah's monastery for some, uh, some years, the, uh, the glamour was, was wearing very thin, and uh, he began to, uh, uh, along with having seen Ajahn Chah as a sort of glorious, brilliant, fantastic, flawless teacher, then uh, certain um, uh, spots were beginning to appear in the, uh, <laughs> in the presentation. And, uh, and so he began to, to get critical of Ajahn Chah and found all kinds of things that um, he would get upset about and annoyed about. And being a very um, forthright American, he eventually decided that um, it was his duty to, 
go to the teacher and point out the um, problems that he had <laughs> and where he was falling short. And, uh, and so um, he asked, uh, and this is quite kosher for, for, for nuns and monks to do. It's quite appropriate. In fact, it's part of your injunction when you, are, you form a relationship of teacher-student, that it's the student's duty to give feedback to the teacher as well as vice versa. So uh, Ajahn Sumedho um, asked permission to, to bring a few things up with Ajahn Chah, and Ajahn thought, oh, yes, please, you know, go right ahead. And so he went through his list, which had been accumulating for some weeks or months, and uh, Ajahn Chah kind of listened and took it all in and, and, and uh, heard him out. And, and uh, finally, after some time, when Ajahn Sumedho paused for breath, and uh, Ajahn Chah said, well, it's... Um, yeah, it's true. I, I have uh, I have many faults, and and I thank you for your um, you know your efforts in in bringing all these up to my attention, and I, and I will consider this carefully. But but also, Sumedho, you 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 ought to consider something too. And that is that perhaps uh, it's not a bad thing that I'm imperfect. Otherwise, you'd be looking for the Buddha somewhere outside your own heart. Ah. <laughs> Touche, Sumeto. <laughs> so uh, that um, that's really that's the, kind of the second part of the the piece is like really sustaining uh, and internalizing that uh, that quality, so that we we don't just need a shrine, we don't just need a center, we don't just need teachers. We we uh, really internalize. Uh, the Buddha principle, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, the three refuges, we, we really awaken to those qualities uh, as genuine, act already present qualities of our own being, already existent, that we can draw upon. And this is like the portable retreat. So we, we come along and have this, this sort of inundation of <laughs> stuff for you know, a week or so, where we, we, we drown ourselves in perceptions of you know, Dharma teachings going on all day and half the night. And, and the, um, the influence coming through the sense world, through the eyes, your ears, your nose, your tongue, your body, kind of reminding you of, of the, the three refuges. But um, then the whole point of that, inund- that kind of total immersion is then it, it empowers and awakens those qualities inside ourselves. So we remember to look to them and to employ them. And that to, uh, uh, to, to live through them, so that when there is, we're actually remembering to use wisdom, we're remembering to see things uh, centered on Dhamma rather than centered on feeling of self. And the uh, uh, taking refuge in Sangha, that refuge in, in um, harmonious conduct in Sila. So, what we there are many different ways of talking about this, you know, this whole experience that we have. Um, but as you, you have noticed, and, you know, when, uh, when we look at our, at our minds and the way that they, they, they relate to the, the world, um, there's, a, there's a, one of the most predominant perceptions is this feeling of, of flowing out. There's a sense of the attention going out into sights and sounds and, smell and taste and touch, going out into thoughts and emotions and moods and memories and plans. There's this sort of the, uh, the becoming motion. Um, 
And uh, someone was saying to me yesterday, that, uh, or sometime along the line, that Joseph Goldstein's favorite gesture is, like, <laughs> he keeps saying, letting go, stepping back, dropping back. And then he keeps making this kind of, the, the, non, <laughs> the non-outflowing, the, kind of the, the letting go and dropping back. So this quality of flowing out is a, is a, a one way of um, of uh, describing what we what we experience as a, as a kind of principal habit of of our of our mind, the conditioned mind, the the, the unaware mind, the habituated mind. But that's its habit. That's its that's its its um, say familiar mode of, of operating. And so that uh, during a situation like this, we have a really good chance to, to, to focus on that and to see how it works and to learn its, its patterns of activity. So then when we don't have such um, external support structures, you know, we're, we're already familiar with that process and we can, we can work with it in a more skillful way. So the, the, the Pali word for outflow is asava. Is another just adding to your vocabulary. This is quite an easy one. Asava means literally means outflow, but it also the, the, there's no proper kind of really exact English equivalent because the 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 Pali also has the connotation of of rot. <laughs> so it's not only a, it's like pure water flowing out. It's kind of stinky, <laughs> slightly rank. There's a kind of rank quality. So you get it translated in all sorts of ways so that. Uh, um, some of the old Pali text society translations rendered it as cankers, the cankers. The sort of <laughs> <laughs> hmm? And uh, Venerable Tanisaro down in Watmeta uh, uses the term effluence, the effluence, which always makes me think of drain pipes. <laughs> but um, I pref- personally, I prefer the slightly more neutral outflow <laughs> as a term. And so that uh, there are traditionally there they talk about three or four of these as being the main domains or dimensions of of how the mind flows out or the, the basically the cracks in the tank, <laughs> uh, and that uh, the um, the first of these is karma sava karma as in sense desire that the the mind flows out into uh, the uh, pursuit of pleasurable experiences, things that we like, things that we want, um, my uh, my preferences, what I what I uh, I like, just on the on the level of sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. And so this is the most familiar and obvious. Of course, you know, it gets first place on the list. It's like in the description of of desire. You know, karma tanha is number one on the list. It's the most obvious um, zone of of, uh, of outflow. I want grab <laughs> you know we reach out and we and, and we take what what we uh, are attracted by we pursue that which we are interested in or attracted by so that's a pretty obvious um, zone of activity then um, the second one uh, is which we've been talking about a fair amount during this week is is bhavasava or the outflow of becoming which is, uh, as we've been describing, the sense of, of uh, the mind getting onto the next thing, wanting to, or ambitiousness even, that, that sense of, of overlooking this in order to get ahead to that. So it's about 
um, restlessness. It's about, uh, say, the next thing and uh, about impatience. So that is, uh, again, uh, you know, the, the, the flowing out, the, the mind's energy um, grabbing on to a, a, an object getting caught in it. Uh, whether that's internal, you know, uh, whether it's a, a sense of ambition, a, a kind of internal restlessness of um, wanting to to become something other, wanting to become more peaceful, wanting to become more excited, wanting to become more <laughs> uh, more rich, wanting to become more uh, uh, anything. That, uh, and also, one thing I should also point out, that the, the, the almost identical twin of the desire to become uh, bhava-tanha is vibhava-tanha, which means the desire to get rid of or to wipe out. So, the, uh, as we'll, you'll have noticed, that um, the mind in meditation tends to shuttle between these two characters. They, they like Tweedledum and Tweedledee, they vie for you know, who's in charge at any one particular moment. You know, Tweedledum and Tweedledee are like, should I become something or should I get rid of get rid of it? Should I have? Uh, should I you know, uh, uh, become super concentrated? Should I get jhana? Should I get um, into absorption or should I just get rid of my problems and wipe out my thoughts and get rid of my unruly emotions? And we kind of the two kind of trade off with each other. So that, that uh, the bhavasava, that, that flow of, of becoming, of, of like moving towards the, the next thing, either with, with, with um, positive or, or negative uh, attributes to it. The third one is, uh, which we haven't talked about so much during this week, but which is a real doozy, to use a technical term, <laughs> is uh, dit asava. Ditti means views and opinions. And this is something that's extraordinarily pervasive within our, within our culture, uh, within the West, is that if I think something, it is therefore true. And if you think different, you're wrong. And that thought is the ultimate reality, and particularly my thought <laughs> is even more ultimate than yours. So that um, that sense of take, of like, Believing in our thoughts, believing in our opinions, and um, then uh, hanging on to them and uh, clashing with others because of opinions differing. And this is something that we, you know, that we don't get very many signals about in our education. You know, from kindergarten on upwards, we do not get told. Um, that uh, thought is is a highly dubious commodity. You know, we're, we're, we we uh, we t- trained to worship it and to, to look upon it as very real and solid, and and um, that to be a great thinker is to be like, oh wow, you know, something very you know, impressive. But it's also um, if you take a little trip down to Stanford University and you look at the Rodin Sculpture Garden, and you look at this large, the largest sculpture of all there which is called the Gates of Hell, at the top dead center of the lintel, of the Gates of Hell, guess who's there? (laughs) That's where the thinker is. 
is, uh, is, is uh, the, uh, the crown piece of the gates of hell. <laughs> so I think Rodin was giving us a clue that, um, that you know, when we cling to thought, when we believe in our thoughts, you know, it's just the gates are right there. <laughs> it takes us into the, the, uh, the realms of, of, uh, of conflict, of, um, of limitation. Uh, so that it's not that... Uh, it's not that opinions are sort of evil or wrong or bad, but just they, it becomes problematic when we, when we take them to be true. <laughs> and this is something difficult for us to get. I remember when I showed up at the monastery in Thailand, and, and I didn't know anything about Buddhism, so I was always kind of asking the, other, the monks and about this and that and the other, and I'd make some kind of statement about, about something, and they'd say, well, that's your opinion. And I kept hearing them also saying, referring to other things. It was just one of these monastic jargon terms. Oh, that's just views and opinions, or that's just your opinion. And I, I would, with, with great sincerity, say, no, no, it's not my opinion, it's true. <laughs> you know. And they say, yeah, yeah, you, you think it's true. I said, no, no, I don't think it's true, it is true. <laughs> and, you know, it really got up my nose for you know, the first few weeks. Like, these guys, they're just really stupid, you know. I was quite impressed with them in many ways, but they just, I couldn't, you know, they, they just had this quirk about kept saying, oh, it's just views and opinions, just views and opinions. Stop clinging to, stop clinging to you know, views and opinions. And they would quote this passage from the third Zen patriarch, which says uh, in his sutra, do not seek for the truth, only cease to cherish opinions. Well, why cherish them? I mean, if they're, you know, if they're true, you don't need to cherish them, they're, they're true anyway. <laughs> You don't need to cherish them. I mean, they stand on their own. You know. It's a fact, right? But uh, then as time, go, time went by, and then I began to look at my own mind and see how sort of fallible and, and uh, fluid and um, untrustworthy the realm of thought actually was, it began to dawn on me, oh, I, you know, I get it. I begin to see that, yeah, thought is not dependable at all. And what was an absolute dead certainty, you know, two months ago is now, you know, I don't agree with it at all. <laughs> and I was the one who was certain of it. <laughs> so it's like, oh, I see what it means. And so that it was like, it was a really kind of strange, a conscious experience of seeing this, what was a, a sort of fixed, immovable reality, suddenly taking on this, you know, like suddenly you, you see it's all filmy and transparent and, and ephemeral and uh, hardly anything there at all. So the uh, ditasava is the energy that we burn uh, in clinging to our opinions. I'm right. You're wrong. Or you're half right. And, uh, and just seeing how much energy we, we do lose and how much grief we cause, how much friction that creates between ourselves and others and between people in that clinging to, to views and opinions. I mean, how many wars have been created, are being created, are being sustained by just this, clinging to opinions, clinging to viewpoints, uh, religious viewpoints, political viewpoints. I mean, oceans of blood have been shed uh, over the clinging to opinions, the capacity that we have to, to believe I'm right and then to be ready to, to take others' lives to, to, to prove to them, you know, <laughs> I'm right. <laughs> and if you don't agree, I'll kill you. You know, it's absolutely insane, really, if, when we look at it that way. It's like as, as, as if 
taking somebody else's life, or at least you know, beating them up, is going to make you correct. I mean, it's completely mad. But we've, you know, how many millennia have we been doing that for? So that you know, most of us are not you know, in the warmongering, but on a political level, but we certainly can find that in our home, in our office, in the school, <laughs> in the retreat center, board meetings, <laughs> committee meetings, you know, all over the place we keep finding ourselves clashing with others. And how often does it happen because uh, I'm right and, uh, and uh, someone else is wrong? So, you know, it's important not to, to think of it in terms of, of, um, uh, of uh, saying that we should never have an opinion or all opinions are, are, are um, irrelevant. But the, the, whole, the problem comes when where they have that quality of, of fixity about it, that we, we, we burn so much energy hanging on to them. I'm not sure of the etymology, but I like certainly I think the, the, the word opinion literally means being out on a wing. You're, you're already off from the center. You're out on the pinion. You're, you're out there on the wing. So uh, even in the, the English word itself, there's a clue about uh, uh, you know, that nature. So the... Um, the fourth of the asava, then, is uh, avijasava, or the outflow of ignorance. And uh, there's different ways you can contemplate this, but the, the one way that, that uh, I like to think of it is the, just the, the energy that's wasted, or, or the energy that goes into the, the raw uh, materialist delusion that the sense world is the ultimate reality. Uh, material objects, my thoughts, uh, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, this is absolutely real. And basically the materialist, the delusion of materialism that we don't even see happening. Um, that this is the, uh, this is the, the, the sense world is the, you know, the, the one and only substantial reality. And it's to be um, you know, believed in and, and held onto. So, what we can see is that in in all of these domains, in sense desire, in uh, becoming, in opinions, and in uh, ignorance, uh, or just I just call it materialism, uh, the materialistic view, that there's this, and that's why I like the word outflow. There's a, there's a, the mind flows out into these different dimensions and, and kind of concretizes them, makes them kind of solid and real. And, and there's a lot of energy burn. A lot of, we, we spend a lot of energy in that uh, flowing out, just like the, um, uh, the, you know, there's cracks in the tank and all of the, you know, the, the, the water or whatever you're keeping in your tank is, is, is flowing out. You have to keep topping it up to, to keep the tank full because there's always cracks in it. So rather than... than um, than uh, going crazy, carrying buckets and buckets from the, uh, from the well <laughs> and filling up the tank over and over, then the, the best thing to do is to uh, mend the cracks and to, to stop the outflows so that the, um, the 
the lessons that we learn from a situation like this, learning to, to see these processes happening in our minds, we can see how that, that outflowing uh, reaction happens. When there's a lack of mindfulness, when, there's, when, we, when we drift off, when we're, we're not clearly aware, then uh, we, there's a clinging to consciousness and then, then uh, defilements of love and hate and, and uh, restlessness and so forth arise and then birth and death, we, we go around and around the cycle. And that when we, uh, we say, recognize that process and, and don't allow the, the outflow to occur, then we are able to, um, to uh, like say, we, we don't have to be rushing back and forth filling the tank up. You know, the tank contains the, uh, uh, the water on its own. So that the, in sustaining this kind of um, practice in a, in a less supportive uh, circumstance, then a lot of it's to do with, with like filling the cracks. How do, we, how do we stop the cracks in the tank? How do we help uh, ourselves so that we don't allow the outflows to get out of control? Or we just have a little seepage. <laughs> Here and there, that the little bit of filler will will take care of. Um, you know, how do we do that? So there's there's many different um, uh, things that we can uh, make use of, or when we we consider a situation like this. Um, first of all, is the um, the well, there's a, there's a few different things. There's uh, the main thing is the uh, the practice of sila or of uh, the precepts, keeping the um, the five precepts, because the uh, a lot of what creates the environment of um, supportive practice in a retreat is that. Uh, we can we can all trust each other. There's a, a very very high degree of, of honesty and, and honor and respect in the in this group. No one's going to rip anything off. No one's going to going to kill anything. No one's going to chat you up. No one's going to um, lie to you or or uh, swear at you or uh, and no one's going uh, and no one's going to be kind of blundering into your room drunk. <laughs> sorry, I thought this was uh, this three oh five. Sorry, sorry, wrong building. Yeah. Have a good evening. <laughs> yeah. It's gonna throw you off your your late night meditation a little bit. <laughs> so, you know that the um, to a great degree that quality of of virtue in the air uh, makes a very, very rich environment for, for practice. And so this is something that as individuals we can sustain, you know, even if the others around us at, the, at our workplace, you know, in our family or on the freeway are not committed to the five precepts, which is a pretty, pretty safe bet. <laughs> I think all of us would be happy to put money on that one, if we had any, but... Uh, <laughs> It'd be a very safe bet. Uh, 
but the, in a way, that's that's um, that's uh, it's irrelevant, really, because the the like I was saying, you, you know, we have to be prepared, and and the purpose of it, the purpose of the practice, is to to internalize the Buddha Dharma Sangha to really discover those qualities in ourselves. And if coming to a situation like this makes it makes us just more dependent on having big visible external signals and makes us weaker and less capable of contacting those things within ourselves, then it's kind of a waste of time, really. You know, the point is to, to really discover and empower those internal qualities. So then uh, the taking the five precepts and really keeping those is really like, at least within yourself, sustaining that environment of thoughtful and careful relationship with other people, with the world, the physical world around you, the way that we relate with um, through uh, uh, the um, say in the realm of, of um, say property, in the realm of sexuality, in the realm of um, say harmlessness, you know, gentleness, respectfulness to other beings, in the the realm of of, um, uh, of mindfulness, sobriety in the realm of uh, uh, all the different dimensions of speech, honesty in speech, uh, gentleness in speech, um, refraining from gossiping and backbiting and so forth. There's, um, we can, through our, our own effort, you know, sustain an environment um, uh, of great wholesomeness. Even if the people around us are not doing that, we can, we can generate that within ourselves and also, the, obviously, our own standards and the way that we're operating affects, you know, will have an effect on others and will become, uh, there's a, it's obviously not just internal, but it, it has a, an effect on those around us. And if we're not too kind of um, sanctimonious and <laughs> holier than thou-ish and, and, uh, and getting all tight-lipped about how badly everyone around you is behaving, <laughs> putting up large... You know, Thirty-six point notices about the five precepts on the on the coffee machine in the office. You know, you know it's like that's not going to win you any friends. <laughs> but just you know, if if people recognize that you are a kind of kind, gentle, honest, trustworthy uh, character, then that's going to be a helpful reflection for them. Whether they particularly want the reflection or not, or whether they're at ease with that, is is another thing. But it, it commu- if it's coming from a good place, then it communicates itself and it does actually support and, and aid others. Also, the other thing with the precepts is that people think of it in terms of a behavioral, um, just in terms of external activity, uh, behavioral quality. But actually, um, what we're doing is, is if you, with the precepts, is we're farming our emotional nature. It's, a, it's like a, a careful nurturing and guiding and working with the emotional texture of our life. And so that um, it's a meditation practice also. Keeping the precepts is very much to do with sustaining mindfulness of our emotional reactivity. Reactivity towards you know, violence, towards uh, um, acquisition, towards sexuality, towards uh, in, through the medium of speech, Honesty and and uh, violence in, in words and so forth, and uh, then with with mindfulness and and uh, sobriety, so that it's a uh, we're 
by establishing those standards, as the, the outflows kind of kick in, you know, whoomph, and then uh, you find yourself just launching into a, a, um, um, what a, 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 a British politician who was caught with his trousers down um, some particular great scandal and was, was, uh, ch- was challenged in the House uh, for having told bald-faced lies. He said, I did not lie. I was merely being eco- economical with the truth. <laughs> How to turn... <laughs> an outrageous uh, impropriety into a virtue. I was being economical. <laughs> so that as we find ourselves becoming economical with the truth, or bending the, bending the facts for the sake of a good story, or, or to personal advantage for some kind, then by, by the presence of the precepts there, it's like, as we see that happening, it's like, oop, you know, the warning light comes on and we see, oh, look, you know, it wasn't actually that way. Oh, well, why do I need to, to bend things in that direction just because you know, it'll give me something that, that I want? So that it's, it's actually, um, it's like the kind of, uh, the precepts establish like the, the liner for the tank. So that, uh, you know, that you're helping to stop any cracks forming in the tank. Or if any cracks are forming, then if there's a good lining, if there's a good... Uh, uh, sealant coat, then, uh, then there's no, the seepage isn't going to begin. So that we're, um, we're alert to those outflows, the, the lurching of, of the mind towards those, those areas. Because, you know, the, and this is, you know, every culture in the world you know, has major laws about, about violence, about the lives of others, you know, and respecting the lives of others, have, you know, have laws about property, about appropriate sexual behaviors, about um, integrity in, in speech and, and, and uh, communication, and, and very often about um, the use of intoxicants. That, you know, every culture you know, across the planet, whether it's a, you know, a tribal culture off in the, in the plains or the, you know, the jungles or in the mountains, or whether it's um, sophisticated first world countries, they, you know, we have scads of, of laws that cover these areas because this is where we get most lost. We most easily lose ourselves. And so that's where the, the societies establish principles. So um, the Buddha pointed out that these are, these are natural laws. They're not just ascribed. They're not just kind of conjured up by a culture. They're, they're innate in the, the human system. So that uh, the... Um, and it's because, you know, as I said, we, we, this is, these are the areas where we lose ourselves most easily. And so that by establishing those, those standards in a formal way, then we're helping ourselves to, to stay you know, close to the Dhamma, enabling the heart to stay you know, close to, to its own truth, rather than being pulled by the, uh, the habits of instinct uh, that come from the more yeah, reptilian Zones of our being. <laughs> Want. <laughs> Take. <laughs> Don't like. Squash. <laughs> Mine. I'm right. <laughs> and that uh, we, we, can, we can do better than... I mean, reptiles are fine. You know, I'm not anything about reptiles. But we can do a little bit better. 
than the than the reptile uh, in our relationships. So the other thing, along with, with really establishing the, the five precepts as a guideline for for conduct and as a as a tool for meditation, because it really helps sustain mindfulness. That it's a really a powerful mindfulness tool. That as you see the the the, the mind twitching in 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 the, you know, in the directions of of um, going against the precepts, and it really it really keeps us alert and awake. We don't drift so much. So along with the precepts, then, in terms of, of contemplation or, um, or a way of other ways of sustaining mindfulness, then, again, say, pursuing the, the, the ongoing theme of this retreat about um, uh, uncertainty. This is a, a very powerful tool. Uh, like I've been talking about anicca as, uh, as uncertainty. Uh, and... Anicca usually is translated as impermanence or, or transiency, but that, in a way, has a to me it has a sort of um, technical feel to it. It's like describing a property of of matter, if you like. It's impermanent. It's it's changing. But uh, in a in a way, and more significantly, is it, the way that we feel it. The, when we meet with with the unknown, when we meet with with change, then the experience of it is, is uncertainty. And that's more, got a, 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 including the emotional quality of how that transiency and instability is received, how we feel it, as a feeling of uncertainty. And so that sometimes impermanence can be sort of this thing that's out, this kind of archetype that's floating around out there, like one of Plato's forms, just sort of drifting around in the cosmos someplace. But uncertainty is a feeling within our heart. So that, in a way, that's I find a more helpful way of, of really bringing it alive, and that uh, like Ajahn Chah, he just uh, would hammer away at this in, in every dimension, both on a, on you know in Dharma talks, but also just in exchanges with people. And if you'd say to things, say uh, you know people were, would be coming to talk to him, and and uh, he'd be sort of just chatting with them, and then they when they would leave, they'd say, he'd say, "Where are you going?" And they say, uh, oh, we're going back to Ubon, the local town. He said, are you sure? <laughs> Is that a sure thing? And then he goes, oh, yeah, right, we might not make it. You know. Or, yeah, well, we're heading towards the, <laughs> the bus stop, but you know, who knows what might happen. Um, and, uh, I mean, there, there are many stories I could tell um, uh, about how he used this, but it was like an ongoing theme all the time. And it's a, one of the most famous examples within the, the community history was when uh, he um, there was rumors that the, the king of Thailand was going to come and pay a visit to Wat Bapong, and he's been circulating for some time. And then uh, Ajahn Chah convened a meeting of the abbots of all of the different branch monasteries. So this was everyone had to kind of schlep to Ubon from all the way or from all over Thailand. It was very unusual to have a sort of a, a whole community meeting. So he gathered everyone together about uh, 80 or a, a 100 monks and had this, this kind of formal gathering in the, in the main temple, sat everyone down and uh, everyone thought he's going to tell us when the king's going to come. And so everyone came together and you know, they had this sort of puja and meditation and so forth. Ajahn Chah gave a, you know, a Dhamma talk and then at the end of the Dhamma talk he said, well, I have some Sangha business that I want to bring up. And everyone said, oh, yes. Yeah. 
Um, this is the subject of, the, um, uh, of His Majesty the King, and I, ha- I uh, wish to inform the Sangha that it is uncertain <laughs> whether the King will come or not. <laughs> that was it, end of meeting. Everyone, went ho- everyone go home. You know? <laughs> that was it, that was the end of the meeting. That was just one item agenda. It's uncertain, okay. <laughs> Nothing to discuss. <laughs> we can all go home now. <laughs> So that as a keep just to use that as an ongoing reflection, you know, it just it's not a sure thing. You know, I think I'm gonna you know, I think I'm gonna go someplace tomorrow. I think I'm gonna get back to my room tonight, it's not a sure thing. You know, there's I could tell you many stories of you know, people who I mean it's not just a matter of dropping dead, but those are the most dramatic ones where yeah, you know, people who you know, drop dead climbing onto you know, stepping onto a bus. You know. Drop dead during the middle of a meal, just halfway through lunch. Pow. Aneurysm. Three seconds later, dead. Just in the middle of lunch. You're sitting there chatting, suddenly gone. Yeah, this is this is the way it goes sometimes. So that that, that sense of of um of uncertainty, of uh of uh not being sure. Um The, uh, there's also a famous story from the uh, from Russia, where um, there's a, a rabbi strolling down the street, and um, this Cossack, kind of, he's a, quite a well-known uh, local spiritual leader, and this Cossack comes up beside him and says, um, "Where are you going?" He said, "I'm not sure." He said, "What do you mean you're not sure? You're walking along the road. You must be, you know, you must be going somewhere. Where are you going?" He said, "I'm not sure." So the Cossack kind of grabs him and drags him off and throws him down to the, sort of the uh, equivalent of the police station in 19th century Russia. And kind of throws him in the cell and, and then um, stomps off and, and uh, leaves him there for a while and then comes in a bit, uh, a bit later and, uh, with, uh, with another of the, of the guards and says, okay, so what is it you're up to? You know, where, you know, I ask you where you're going and you say, you don't know where you're going. You know, you're supposed to be a resident of this town and, you, you know, it's... Um, uh, you know, what is it? What, what kind of game are you playing at? You know, you're trying to. Are you trying to be clever, or you're trying to be you know, funny? I mean, your home's over there, and the synagogue's over there, and you know, you tell me you don't know where you're going. He said, "Well, I ended up at the jail, didn't I?" <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you stopped me, I didn't know where I was going to go. I didn't know where I was going to get to the synagogue, or whether you're going to tow me off to jail. So you asked me where was I going. I said, "I don't know." <laughs> I think it was probably Ajahn Chah in a previous life. <laughs> so to to really bring that to mind and to um, to kind of embody that, one of the things he would frequently do is he'd uh, he was always using kind of objects around him as examples things, and he'd, he'd hold up a glass and say, "This is a broken glass." Can you see this glass is already broken? Can you see this is a broken glass? And, and you sort of look closer and think, well, well, that's pretty good. It's still got some water in it. <laughs> says, can you see this glass is broken? And then, uh, then he'd say, if you can see that this glass is broken already, then when its day comes, then you'll recognize, oh, 
it's merely fulfilling its, uh, its necessary fate. That's what had to happen to it sooner or later. Aha. If you think that this glass is a glass, you think it really is a glass, then when, then when it breaks, then your heart breaks with it. So if you can see that this glass is already broken, then, then you won't suffer. So you would use this as, a, as, a, as an analogy. I mean, actually, I fully admit that the first, when I first saw him doing that, I was like, looking for the cracks in the glass. And thinking, it doesn't look broken to me. <laughs> Couldn't get it at all. Uh, so I, I freely admit that I was thick. <laughs> Didn't understand the point whatsoever. But you know, after a year or two, I got it. <laughs> and it, and it's, it's true. If we, if we, but we have to make that effort. Like it doesn't that 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 recognition doesn't happen on its own. We actually have to go out and, and recollect that. It's like, oh, you know, this is a broken glass. This this body, it's broken. It's it's this is a dead body. You know, this is um, this is a an end, this is a finished retreat. This is this is a, this is a deserted retreat center. Yeah, there'll be this will be a chicken farm in couple of hundred years' time, you know. <laughs> they have little racks all around here, kind of several stories. Of... This is an ex-retreat center. And if we can see that it is an ex-retreat center, just like Abhayagiri is an ex-monastery, you know, it'll be a hunting ground or something for the, <laughs> the NRA. <laughs> <laughs> One day, you know. Or the, you know, the 21st century equivalent of the NRA, whatever they are. Or their ray guns. <laughs> Zapping the woodpeckers. So, um, that, if we can see that, then what that does, that uncovers this undercurrent of, of anxiety, that subtle, ever-present becoming, that flow, the outflow of that anxiety of trying to hold it all together, hoping it's not going to fade, trying to, to make sure it doesn't fall apart, or isn't damaged, or isn't broken. And it's not that we don't care for the glass, you know, we take care of it and look after it and, and that, but sooner or later we know that it's got to go, because everything will. And that if we really pick up that, a reflection on impermanence and just use it all the time, it has an amazingly powerful effect. Um, it's so simple, like a two- or three-year-old can figure out that everything changes, right? You don't have to be very old to figure that one out, to understand that. But, and it seems so obvious, it's like, well, it's the, you know, of all the three signs of existence, Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta, it's, you know, it's the easiest one. Yeah. But the, one of the amazing things is, even though it's so simple, that if we, if we really work it, if we, if we really work it, then it's incredibly liberating. If we, if we pick it up in this way and just keep using that through the daily life uh, and the flow of events in our, our day and just keep remembering, it's not a sure thing. And not just in terms of events and material objects and birth and death, but just the judgments that we make about ourselves and other people. Oh my God, I got it wrong. I can't believe it. I'm so stupid. That's a disaster. It's like, well, maybe so, maybe not. You know, or, oh, incredible and great, wonderful. I made it. You know, it's marvelous. It was what a big success. This is, this is fantastic. And then you're celebrating, and then you find out that what was a success for you was the worst day in somebody else's life. Like the fact that you won the prize, you know, broke somebody else to pieces. 
Oh, didn't realize that. Yeah, and, and in thousands of ways, we make assumptions and about ourselves, judgments about ourselves, evaluations of all sorts of things. Just keep saying, it's not a sure thing. Is that so? Is that, is that the whole story? It's not a sure thing. Maybe so. It's uncertain. And then just notice when we do that, how that, that both is unsettling to the ego, but it frees the space up enormously for the heart. But, oh yeah, of course. Well, of course it's uncertain. Ah. Therefore the heart knows, ergo, do not depend on it. This is a bad investment. Do not put your money on this one. So uh, one time I did a, a retreat, a three-month retreat, uh, uh, and uh, I usually go for the, the kind of, um, you know, I like the sort of whiz-bang, uh, super, um, super strength kind of teachings and practices. And, I, and I'd been doing this for about 10 years or so, and I thought, well, well, maybe I should sort of rewind and go back to being very, very simple. So rather than trying to meditate on emptiness every day, or do sort of extreme ascetic practices or something. When I did this retreat, I decided I have three rules. Get up when I wake up. <laughs> stop eating when I've had enough. And contemplate Anicca. It was the most profound retreat I'd ever had. <laughs> I have probably ever had. There's those three simple rules. Pretty basic. Food, sleep, and, and uh, impermanence. You think, well, you know, you'd have thought after 10 years of monastic training you could have <laughs> raised the bar a little bit, but just those incredibly simple things. And there's also, there's a, maybe that's just what I'll, I'll leave it with you for this evening in terms of handy hints to keep the retreat going and sustain a, a skillful atmosphere. Get up when you wake up. Stop eating when you've had enough. Incredibly powerful gesture, just putting the fork down. <laughs> All the strength in the world needed. And just using that constant reflection on uncertainty, impermanence. Not a sure thing. And just those simple um, recollections, simple um, methods can... Uh, really empower us enormously and sustain this, this very self-same kind of environment for practice. So I will leave these thoughts with you for the evening. <coughs> Anyone? One Why is it that we can always find emptiness when we don't want it? (laughs) (laughs) Too much contemplation of emptiness. Finish with uh, 
the uh, five subjects for frequent recollection, page 22. Andamaya <laughs> Abhinapachoe kanabatang banamase Charatambo mita charanganatito I am of the nature to age I have not come beyond aging Bayaditamo vibayadinganatito I am of the nature to sicken, I have not come beyond sickness. Maranadamo mi maranananatito, I am of the nature to die, I have not come beyond dying. Sabehime pie imanabe inana pavo inabavo. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. Kama sakomi kama dayadoka mayoni kama bandu kama patisaranoya kama karesami kalayanangwa papakangwa tatsadaya to bhavesami I am the owner of my kama Heir to my kama, born of my kama, related to my kama, abide supported by my kama, whatever kama I shall do, for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. Ewang amehiya binhang pachawe kitabang. Thus we should frequently recollect. So, um, tonight, um, and tomorrow, tomorrow afternoon, uh, our plan is to have a, um, uh, Dharma sharing. Those of you who've done retreats with us before know this. Um, uh, this is. Uh, I usually make an invitation for people to uh, reflect on the retreat time and just to allow, invite the muses to come and visit and to see um, if the, the ret- you know the, some experience or qualities of the retreat uh, you can put them into shape in in words or or. Um, uh, other forms. I thought this time just to to pump the theme to exhaustion, <laughs> that so we would use the format of uh, the uh, the Japanese uh, death poems. You know, when someone's approaching their death and they write a little verse, say "Adios" or "Ada Adi." <laughs> well, the Buddhist equivalent of "Adios" would be "Anibana." 
<laughs> so to um, to consider uh, the just you know how this retreat has been, and to leave some you know some reflections, some some words uh, together. Or you can just um, you can either do it in the form of a poem or a little um, piece. Uh, there's a lot of us here, so um, unless we're going to be here till. <laughs> Uh, a long time, we can keep them fairly brief, but uh, we'll have that tomorrow afternoon. We'll have a, a, a sitting at the usual time, and then um, the main part of the afternoon, we'll have a, a sharing, hearing each other. Um, so when I say also death poems, I mean, that's just, um, uh, you know, as a theme, you can use that idea or not. Also, it doesn't mean um, kind of epitaphs. <laughs> like, the, the the Briti- the kind of English speaking world has this this sort of tradition of epitaphs like um, here lies the body of Leslie Moore no Les no more <laughs> <laughs> or here lies Martin Elginrod have mercy on my soul Lord God as I would were I Lord God and thou wert Martin Elginrod <laughs> so. So we're good at that kind of thing, but um, the, the Japanese ones are more, um, there's a beautiful one I remember from a, a nun, a Japanese nun, who, uh, who wrote, um, 66 times these eyes have beheld the changing scenes of autumn. You have heard enough about moonlight on the water. Just listen to the sound of the pines when no wind stirs them. There's some paper and pens and things in the hallway for those who might need. Oh, they're on the back of the table there. So. And please make the pens, make sure the pens come back and do not go to the, the planet where all lost biros go to. Biroid <laughs> Hmm? I can see them from here. They're by the by the, the corn stalks. Ah, very good. Well, find some form of writing implement <laughs> of any kind that temporarily holds itself together.